0: It's good to be back again, and um, this is our second session today, and we're in verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I want to read that text, and it's very important. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for. Thank you for your wisdom that you have revealed in your word. In your book. Oh, dear God, help us. Help us to do this. To be this for the sake of your son and the good of your people and help us now, Lord, in Jesus name, amen. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Now, this would apply to just about everyone I'm looking at here on the screen. You are all quite young and uh, it's a command. Do not let anyone look down on the fact that you're young. Literally, let no one think against you. It's also been translated, let no one scorn you or in the King James, I believe, despise you simply because you're young. Now, how young was Timothy? Well, we don't really know, but we know this. He was not a novice because Paul would have never ordained a novice. He qualified. He was elder qualified. So here's some things I want you to look at, he says. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Now, there are two ways to go about this, a wrong way and a right way. So let's look at the wrong way. So when he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, you demand that others respect you because of your position. You just demand that they give you respect. Um, You don't even need a position. Nowadays, you don't even need to have accomplished anything uh, to demand respect from other people. We see it all the time. We see athletes demanding respect. We see students demanding respect. We see uh, people who literally have contributed nothing to their own lives or society, and yet everyone is demanding respect. That's not what it's talking about. You don't say you respect me because I'm an elder. Not in that way. So the wrong way is you demand others respect you because of your position. The other is you earn the respect of others through your character, your words and your deeds. Now, there you go. Now, before we get into that, I want to say something. My wife and I were talking the other day about self-esteem. And, you know, that's a that's a big important word nowadays. um, About. um, And and there's two extremes. There's one extreme that says, you know, it's all about self-esteem and you need to esteem me and you need to give me self-esteem. You need to show me that I'm worthy of self-esteem. The other extreme is self-esteem is just not important. It's just a bunch of millennials crying, uh, crying out about their own situation. Well, both those are wrong. I believe that self-esteem is important. I do. Uh, But here's what you need to understand, and especially in the life of your children. But it's also the life of anyone. Self-esteem cannot be given. It cannot be given. Self-esteem is earned. So how do you give a child self-esteem? You teach them to have character. You uh, assign them tasks that they can accomplish. And when they accomplish those tasks, they will think, wow, I did that. I accomplished that. You see, self-esteem is important, but self-esteem cannot be given. Self-esteem is earned. So if you're always constantly telling your child, you know, this and that about themselves because you're wanting to increase their self-esteem, you're just gonna ruin them and make them dependent upon other people's opinions and also make them demanding something they never earned. But if you teach your child character and they reflect good character, if you teach your child to work, as they accomplish things and add things to their list of I can do this, I can do that, they will grow in self-worth. Do you see what I'm saying? And that is very, very important. Very important. Now, just wanted to throw that in. So he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. What must you do? You must earn respect. You must earn it. And we're going to see later on, it's not something that you earn once and for all. You must keep it. By a stable, constant lifestyle of demonstrating Christ like character. Now, I want you to look down, it says. At the bottom of verse 12, he says, show yourself an example of those who believe. Now, this can be translated two different ways, and both of them would be correct, would be appropriate. It can be show yourself as an example or set an example of those who believe. Show yourself to be an example of what a true Christian is. That's one possible translation. The other possible translation is show yourself an example to those who believe. So live in such a way that you will be an example to other believers, as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, both of these apply, don't they? A pastor, a minister should be an example of what a true believer really is, and he ought to be an example to other believers that they can imitate. And so here's something that I want you to say to see. It's not just follow my doctrine. It's not just follow my uh, teaching. It's follow my example. Follow my life. When I'm talking about the Great Commission, especially with regard to the Western Church, I always ask this question. What part of your Christianity should be exported? And what part of your Christianity should be quarantined? For the minister, for myself, what part of my life would I want exported to other people? And what part of my life should be quarantined? So that other people aren't affected. Now, he says. Show yourself an example. The verb show is present tense. It's a present tense imperative. And I've written here, the minister must continually show himself worthy of respect. Respect is not a once and for all title granted to the minister. It must not only be earned, but it must be earned every day. Now, I was in a hallway the other day and someone said something one minister said something kind of sharp and the other one applied jokingly but also in a sharp manner and when i heard that i thought to myself how many times have i done the same thing but i wanted to see what would happen do you know what happened both of them did not show themselves as an example and it was just it was just one phrase it wasn't even anger or anything like that it was just Kind of spouting off. But what I saw was uh, afterward, brother, stop. Forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. Not that way. I was wrong. So we're not talking about perfection, are we? You're an example of piety and you're an example when you blow it. When you sin. That you confess your sin. Do you see that? And you do so openly when it's necessary. Look, you're never going. Jesus is the only perfect example. But you can be an example of a true believer. And one aspect will be. uh, When you blow it sometimes. you, you, You ask for forgiveness. You admit it. I had these, uh, this dear couple years ago in my church that had come out of a Pentecostal church. They were very lively, but in all the good ways, um, just wonderful believers. And I was preaching one day and, um, and the, the dear sister, while I was preaching, she said, glory, hallelujah. I mean, really loud. <laughs> and I said, I said, thank you as the, the Pentecostals among us. And I didn't mean that in a bad way, but it hurt her. And, and rightfully, uh, rightfully so. I, I did wrong. I didn't mean to. And so that next Sunday, when I got up in the pulpit, I said, before I preach, um, I was preaching last Sunday, as many of you know, and I was really going at it. And our dear sister said, glory, hallelujah. And it was totally appropriate, everything that she did. And I kind of made a joke about it. And I was wrong. Uh, She was, uh, she's a dear sister and always a great encouragement, even when I'm preaching. I just shouldn't have said that that way, that flippantly. You see, that's an example of a believer. Because believers sin. Believers make mistakes. And so you can be an example in piety and obedience, but you can also be an example of when a person needs to confess sin, and they do it, okay? And let me tell you something. When I heard um, that brother the other day say, forgive me, brother, I, I shouldn't have. When I heard about it, I uh, did my respect for him decrease, or did it increase? It increased. I know he's, I, I, I put more trust in him now. I mean, I I did trust him greatly, but I mean, it just accentuated my trust. Why? Here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile, who is a godly man. But even when he blows it every once in a while, he says, forgive me. Meant the world to me. Okay. So now here's something that I, I want you to see, you know, show yourself as an example. We learn from first Timothy, chapter three, verses one through seven when it's talking about elders, but then it says uh, very similar things about deacons. Um, that character is what primarily determines the fitness of a minister. That he is doctrinally sound in the faith is extremely important. As a matter of fact, I would give that priority because character can only flow out of true doctrine. But what I want you to see, dear brothers, is character is so important. And we don't need to work less on our sermons, but we do need to work more on our lives. That's for sure. And look, when you know that your progress does not determine how much God loves you, when you know that God's love for you is already set and immutable, then working on your character is not a dreadful thing. It's a good thing. You know, if a woman is constantly trying to make herself more beautiful so that her husband will love her, that's slavery. That's bondage. But if a woman is trying to make herself more beautiful because she knows that her husband does love her, that's a completely different thing. And and that's what I want you to see. You need to work on your character, brethren. You need to spend more time striving for Christ's likeness. As a matter of fact, the best way to improve your preaching is to improve your character. Now, he's going to give us categories or characteristics in which the minister must excel. As an example, he says here, in verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Now, let's look at the first one speech here. It's literally word. Now, <clears throat> I believe, of course, using uh, logos as the as the word here in Greek. I believe that it does include um, The doctrine he proclaims. uh, Maybe his pulpit work. um, But it's definitely not confined to that. Your speech. And Jesus said, what's in the heart comes out the mouth, didn't he? And. We all know that. That a speech problem is a heart problem. Even if it's not malicious, it could be foolishness. In the heart. And so. Speech is so very, very important, and I want us to look at, at several passages. Um, let's begin. Just hold your place, but go to Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three, verse eight and nine. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now, I want you to see that um, there is both the interior and the exterior, the inner and the outer here. We, We see that there can be anger, wrath, malice in the heart. And that comes out in the form of slander and abusive speech. We could probably add there also jealousy and envy. Will lead to slander and abusive speech. And so speech is ultimately a heart problem. Now, we have to be very, very careful here. Why? When we go into even the words of Jesus, we see sometimes that Jesus says some very hard things. We see John the Baptist calling them vipers, uh, we see things like whitewashed tombs. Um, so many things, two sons of hell. And so I do not want your speech to become uh, impotent and effeminate. There are times when you need to call people out and sometimes. Um, you need to say some serious things. Very hard things. Sir, you are a heretic. Sir. You are a narcissist and you think only of yourself and you use other people. There are times. And so I want you to be very, very careful here. But in those times, it is also very difficult to maintain self-control. So we're not talking about some effeminate speech in which you can never rise a decibel above normal. There are times to say very, very hard things. But he says this anger, this wrath, this malice, this slander, this abusive speech from your mouth and do not lie to one another. Um, You know, ministers sometimes will, if if not lie, will at least bend or dull the truth. Sometimes it's out of cowardice, but sometimes. It's out of empathy. They just don't want to hurt somebody. And that's a good thing. If you ever lose that, you're in trouble. But sometimes you must say things that do hurt. You know, a doctor who knows someone who had that has cancer, but will not tell them because he doesn't want to ruin their day. That's self-preservation on his part. He has to tell them they have cancer. And so we must tell the truth even when it hurts somebody. But Paul says in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. And then there are times I want to remind you, you need to be very, very cautious, but there is times when there will be times when someone's a heretic and you need to straight up call him a heretic. Or someone is doing great damage to God's people. And at that moment, you need to be a dangerous man. And that is why you need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that is why you need to be renewing your mind constantly in the word of God. Because at that moment, you don't have time to prepare. And so you want to always be prepared, always growing. Colossians four, chapter four, verses five and six, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Um, know this about your speech. First of all, notice here in, in Colossians 4, 5, and 6 that he talks about conduct, um, wise conduct in one verse, and then graceful speech in another. They both go together. They both go together and know this measure your words, especially at first, because you can always add to them, but you can never retract them. You can always go back and say something with more force, but you can't always go back and dull what you said with a sharp blade. So you need a great deal of wisdom. And sometimes it's better to say nothing. Go back, get on your knees, ponder what you should say, look at scripture, maybe even get counsel and then speak. Sometimes it's even better when you're in conflictive situations to not speak at all, go back and not only study, ponder and get counsel, but write it out and then stick with what you wrote. Because in the heat of the moment, you'll be tempted to go beyond it. In First Thessalonians, uh, chapter two, verse four, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. He's saying we speak as men who have been called of God to speak. It's our job to speak, but we do so not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Now, now here's what I want you to see, and it's very, very important. There's always you got to make a choice. It's not about are you trying to please somebody? You should be trying to please somebody. The question is, whom are you trying to please? (laughs) Someone might say, well, you're always trying to please somebody else. Yes, you're right. In conduct and speech, I'm always trying to please somebody else, but the one you're trying to please is God. And if that causes you to bring displeasure to men, then you must do so. So he says, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart, God, who not only knows your speech, he knows why you said it the way you said it. He says, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Flattery and greed usually go together. Why do people flatter? Because they want to get something from somebody. And there's only one thing worse than a harsh preacher, and that is a flattering preacher. They look like a politician or a used car salesman. Do not flatter. Do not try to win people in that sense with your words. Be loving, be honest, be empathetic, be kind, let your speech be measured. Compliment people when compliments are due, but do not flatter. It will fall back on you sooner or later, and you'll be seen as a man who has little character, a man who is manipulating, a man who is trying to use others to get something. So always have a great deal of caution in that matter. Titus 2, 7 and 8, basically, Paul tells the same thing to Titus that he's telling Timothy, he says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Now, notice how he's tying so many things together here. He says, good deeds. Purity and doctrine. Doctrine. Dignity, the way you carry yourself with dignity and soundness of speech. I I saw a minister once who uh, who presented himself on the Internet in in a very clownish fashion. And it wasn't dignified for a minister of Christ, a minister of Christ can laugh and joke and, and so many things, but you need to be very, very careful that you don't cross the line. There is a dignity that you must maintain. You're not a clown. You're not a comedian. Um, My wife says, she says, if you're going to be funny in the pulpit, you need to be very, very measured. On second thought, don't be funny in the pulpit. (laughs) It's unbecoming. So. Just look at this. Be an example of good deeds. What kind of good deeds do you do? It's not just about preaching. What kind of good deeds can you point to? In your family, your service to your wife, your service to your children, your service to brothers and sisters in Christ, your service to unbelievers. What kind of good deeds can you point to that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven? So he says. Example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. Never forget, sometimes when we put an emphasis on behavior, I've heard people say, yeah, doctrine isn't as important as living your Christian faith. Well, your Christian faith is based on your doctrine, so you're pretty much shipwrecked. If you don't have purity of doctrine. And then he says dignified dignity. Do they, they see, you know, guys, listen to me. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll just come across preachers on the internet and I see a guy and he's he's my age and he's got these big glasses on and cool tennis shoes and skinny jeans and everything else. And I'm like, I don't even spend time to even listen. I could care less. There's no dignity. You're not a 15-year-old anime character, Okay. You're a minister of Christ. Do you know, I'm not saying that you need to do this because I don't do it, can't afford it, but (laughs) have you ever noticed how presidents dress? It's always in that deep blue jacket, that red tie, that white shirt. Uh, that's because they figured out that 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 communicates dignity. Now I'm not saying we should all do that or that we should all, you know, or all can do that. But you need to not only hold yourself and speak with dignity, but you need to uh, present yourself with dignity uh, in the pulpit, in the church. Uh, be very careful about this dressed down attitude that we have. Because first of all, if you're a minister, I don't care how you dress, no one's gonna think you're cool. Okay? It's just not going to happen. You're just going to look goofy. Not cool. I don't care how many tattoos you get. I don't care what kind of clothes you wear. It's, hey, man, you're a preacher. You're a pastor. (laughs) You're not cool. You'll never be cool, but you can be dignified. And he says, sound speech, which is beyond reproach. This is assuming, and rightfully so, that there are going to be people who've got you under a microscope. You see, people aren't going to be neutral with regard to you at any time. There may have been a time where if you are a minister, they gave you the benefit of the doubt. Then it may be it went from not giving you the benefit of the doubt, but at least being neutral toward you with a wait-and-see attitude. Now that's not the case. If you're a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're somewhere on par with a, uh, a guy who, you know, um, takes Christmas away from orphans. I mean, there's probably very few people considered lower in society than a minister of the gospel. So they're going to be looking to get you. And they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And so you need to be very careful about your speech. And sometimes it's just better to say nothing. It's better to say nothing. And he says in verse 8, sound in speech, which is beyond, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Now, that's very difficult. You know why? Because our entire life is speech making. We speak. We say a multitude of things and we're fallible men. And so when we say a multitude of things, at least some of those things aren't going to go so well. So we need to be extra cautious and we need to be humble when we blow it and we need to recognize it. I was in an interview many years ago in Detroit. And the first thing the interviewer asked me on the radio is, he said, man, there are a lot of people who hate you. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I know. And he says, well, what what do you say about that? And I said, well, you know, when Jesus was on this earth, he was persecuted. And the radio host looked at me like he knew where I was going, that I'm like Jesus and therefore I'm persecuted too. But that's not what I said. I said, Jesus was persecuted But whenever Jesus was persecuted, whoever was persecuting him was wrong. (laughs) Jesus never did anything wrong. Jesus never said anything wrong. And so when people criticized him, count on it 100% of the time they were wrong. Paul Washer is not Jesus. Paul Washer is not perfect. Paul Washer has said many things. I don't know of things I've said with doctrinal error, but I know I've said things the wrong way. In zeal and boldness, becoming brash. Um, In excitement, saying things that were unclear. And so what you need to understand is that, yes, we need to be careful with our speech, brethren, but only Jesus was perfect. So then comes in again. Are you going to acknowledge Yes, I. I, I misspoke, I, I said that in a wrong way or with a wrong attitude, and I am deeply sorry. OK, so we need to be an example in speech. Then he goes on and he says conduct. Literally, it means way of life, not just a moment in time, but conduct. And that's why if I see somebody who, for a few moments, are in great anger. Um, I have a tendency to think they're an angry person. But if I know their way of life, that um, in their daily conduct, they're not angry. In their daily conduct, they're not always looking for a fight. In their daily conduct, then I can know that there's either a reason for that person's anger or... In that moment, they have sinned, but it doesn't define them and it doesn't make them beyond reproach. So literally conduct. People are going to watch you, brethren. They are going to watch you. They're going to put your life under a microscope. Even those people who love you. And believe that you're a worthy minister are going to set their eyes on you too much. So our conduct needs to be true. There's a passage in Hebrews 13, seven, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, same word, imitate their faith. Should that be said about you? And so this is the thing as a minister. You are taking upon yourself the obligation to have right conduct and to be judged for not having it. Hebrews 13, 7, then James 3, 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you is really, really wise? Not just not just a facade, but you're really wise. Okay, let him show it by his good behavior. Again, conduct, style of life. Let him show it by his good behavior. His deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Then first 1 Peter 1:15. 1 but like the holy one who called you be holy yourself also in all your behavior or conduct be holy as God is holy. You know um, Ephraim was like a cake half baked it was raw on one side and burnt on the other. Just because in one category of your life, you're Christ-like doesn't mean in all categories you are. You know, if you break uh, one law, it doesn't matter that you kept all the others, you're still you still come under a penalty. You know, so we want to be well-rounded. For example, I have a tendency to err in this if someone works hard, I think they're virtuous. But uh, hard work is not always the result of virtue. It can be the result of manipulation, of greed, of all kinds of things, a desire for fame and power, prestige. And so we want to be holy in all our conduct. And don't make excuses, you know, where, well, you know, in the big things, I'm good. Yeah, but those little foxes that spoil the vineyard as we see in the Song of Solomon. So. Then first Peter 212, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And so what he's saying is keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers who really don't like you. And even if there are people in the church who are sort of adverse, you're not going to win them by many words, but you're going to win them by conduct. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, because of your conduct, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We silence people, not with arguments, but by a righteous life. First Peter 316 and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Again, good behavior. Second Peter three eleven. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, meaning all of the old creation, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct style of life and godliness? Work on it all. Work on it all. The sphere of your church life, the sphere of your private life, the sphere of your family, the sphere of government and society. Be holy in all your conduct. Now, I want us to come to an end there because the others are so very, very important and we'll have to address them the next time. And that is love, faith and purity He talks about love, faith and purity and we'll we'll talk about those next time. But brothers, this all goes back to none of this is going to be meaningful unless you and I take serious the need to discipline ourselves in these things, to study scripture with regard to conduct and to conform our conduct to what is written, not the spirit of the age And not even the ideas of our own hearts and minds. But What is proper conduct? I wish that in my life I had spent more time researching this out. How then shall we live based on the commands? All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that you would use it, Lord, in the life. Of your ministers. In my own life, dear God, to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Please, dear God, help us grow in character that we might be of greater help and service to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.